Welcome to You Talks, brought to you by State of You. Hi everyone, and welcome back to the State of You podcast. My name is Marie-Pierre, I'm 26 years old, and I'm from Canada. Today, I'll be your host. Um, I have studied international children's rights and I work for State of Youth. And today I have the pleasure to be with Karkashan Basu. How are you? I'm great, thank you. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Uh, Karkashan has done amazing things. Yeah, for example, she was the winner of the International Children's Peace Prize of 2016. She was also the founder of uh, Green... Uh, Green Hope. Hope Foundation. Thank you. And you were really recently uh, selected by 430 under 30, right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, if I start with the question about the International Children's Peace Prize, uh, can you remind us why you have won this award? Sure. So I won the International Children's Peace Prize for my work on children's rights, environmentalism, and uh, peace, and how important it is for children all across the world to have the right to a clean and healthy environment, which in turn creates peaceful societies all across. Exactly. Uh, so you have done many things, and I'm curious to know what are the most uh, achievements you have done that you're, that makes you feel the proudest? Well, my proudest achievement is, of course, uh, my organization, Green Hope Foundation, and all of the work that we do uh, over there, because honestly, it's a platform where I'm able to ensure that we're able to help out the people as well as the planet. So my work is really very broad all across the sustainability spectrum. So, you know, the my greatest achievement is being able to bring a smile on someone's face. And so whether that is providing them with uh, electricity that's powered by solar energy, uh, providing them with safe spaces, uh, building toilets uh, in communities or providing them with clean uh, drinking water or, you know, even regenerating mangrove ecosystems uh, to protect communities from uh, climate change and these disasters. There's a lot that I'm really uh, proud of, but my greatest achievement would always be uh, Green Hope Foundation and the work we do there. Yeah, it's actually really inspiring. Um, while doing your work, what do you like the most about it? I think the best part about my work is that I get to learn every single day. I think that we are so often in our own bubbles and you're only thinking about, uh, you know, our own selves that we forget that there are other people out there that who have completely different circumstances who, you know, sometimes do need uh, our help as catalysts to bring about change. So I think that kind of learning is really beneficial to I me. Mean, I, Oh, and I always say you're never too uh, young or too old to learn. Mm -hmm. So I think that's probably the best part about my work. Yeah, I really understand. What is next for you? <laughs> so we have a lot of projects uh, planned at Green Hope Foundation. You know, of course, uh, now we're in the middle of a pandemic. So our relief efforts for uh, communities affected most by the pandemic, as well as uh, other uh, disasters that were kind of exacerbated by the pandemic, uh, like climate change, gender inequalities, uh, working with them to ensure that they have access to a safe and healthy life. So just making sure that we were able to expand on that. And uh, yeah, it's it's difficult to be really concrete about it because, you know, we are in a time where there are so many changing scenarios, but uh, our ultimate goal is to make sure we continue to provide them with the tools for self-empowerment. So there will definitely be a lot more communities right now that would uh, have access to 
electricity to water to uh, a health, clean and healthy environment and with children and women benefiting uh, from them the most. Mm -hmm. uh, you said a word about uh, the pandemic, yeah. And I guess, I assume it was a really big challenge. Uh, I was wondering what is your biggest challenge so far that you had to, uh, to overcome? Yeah, I mean, the pandemic was definitely uh, a challenge. I think, you know, for an organization that works so much on the ground, we obviously had to go online immediately, which we were able to do. And it's really great because we were able to uh, conduct 95 plus high level uh, webinars with like people, like heads of states, like former uh, president of Ireland, Mary Robinson, former prime ministers of Greece and Canada, and all the way to like, you know, civil society actors and young people who are bringing about amazing change. And we've continued our education academies as well to you know make sure that children uh, don't miss out on learning. But what we also saw that you know this was the time for us to act. So it was imperative that we found a way to overcome those challenges, and especially in terms of ensuring that children living in areas that are affected by both climate change and the pandemic they don't miss out on school. And in some of those communities, we saw that a lot of them and most of them girls had to drop out permanently. So. We were able to overcome uh, that challenge. We've now instituted solar powered mobile libraries in uh, mm -hmm. several countries. So these take books directly to the doorstep of the children. So over 250,000 children uh, in India and Bangladesh and Liberia so that the children, and especially the girls, they don't miss out on their learning. And it helps the environment because it is solar powered. So in that way, we were able to really bridge that gap. So yeah, it's we face a lot of challenges in our work, but we, <laughs> have to it's it's really we don't have a choice we have to find ways to overcome them for the good of people and planet it is a fantastic really um what have you is there's one lesson that you have learned throughout all this yeah i think that it's really important that you have passion you have honesty hard work uh optimism and empathy i think those five values really really help you out because you know, this is, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. So you need to have that honest hard work on your side. And if you're, you know, if you're not passionate, you can't really move forward. And I think optimism, it's, we work in really difficult uh, environments. So optimism is really, really needed. And I think the last thing that, about empathy, I think that really provides you with the opportunity to uh, understand and recognize someone else's problem as your mm -hmm. own. And that will really allow you to uh, work for the betterment of humanity and planet as a whole. So yeah, I think these five qualities are extremely important for anyone uh, seeking to bring about change. You said earlier that you were able to continue your project. Uh, so I understand that the uh, internet was really helpful to you. And I was wondering if you think that today's activism is uh, different than the one before maybe. Is the role of social media, for example, uh, I mean, social media and technology, it's definitely a tool to be used. Uh, you know, it's not positive or negative. It's just like people use it and definitely can be used for, uh, you know, social good. But at the end of the day, what really counts is actions on the ground. And that's something that we see every day at Green Hope Foundation that, yes, you can, you know, tweet about something or, you know, you can spread the message maybe that, uh, you know, or reach out to someone. But at the end of the day, if you really want to bring about change, it has to be localized and has to be at the ground level because that is where change really happens. And additionally, we have seen during the pandemic how 
there are so many people around the world who don't have access to technology and there's this huge digital divide that when especially in the western world we forget that you know we have access to tech and to social media so we think that it's very easy to communicate and just uh, go about and that's our way of bringing about change but no there is a very different reality uh, even in the developed nations and of course in other parts of the world as well so yeah i think while technology is definitely helpful we also need to find uh, ways to make sure that the messages spread there are implemented at the ground level and that uh, we don't just see technology as the main tool savior it's uh, also making sure that those who are affected by the digital divide uh, we are able to address that problem so we were able to do that in several uh, places as well, in several rural communities, we installed routers so that the children could connect to online learning. And then, you know, we've continued providing them with uh, our climate resilience education. So our online academies have continued in that way. But yeah, it's it's a very, it's a multi-layered process, but uh, yeah, I think uh, actions on the ground, that's what counts the most. Okay, yeah. Uh... Would you say that um, local solutions are important in the work that you're doing? Is Absolutely. it the key? Absolutely, yeah. Local solutions are critical. I think that most of, uh, most of the times we see that there's this one-size-fits-all solution that's put forward for addressing our world's challenges. And that's it's so obvious that it's not going to work, but it's still put forward almost always, actually always, by the Western nations. And I think that you, there are different challenges all across the world and even big global problems like climate change and biodiversity loss and uh, you know, gender inequalities. All of these have specific localized impacts in different parts of the world. So what uh, solution I implement in uh, Canada, for instance, to address a problem, it's going to be very different from what I implement in Kiribati, for instance. So yeah, it's really important we recognize uh, those intersections and how uh, you know they uh, affect people and planet on the ground. And then we take actions to mitigate that. There is a very, like a lot of people now say that, you know, local actions aren't going to help anything, but as a grassroots advocate, I strongly disagree with that because we have seen firsthand every time how uh, beneficial these local solutions are. So I'll give you an example. We've planted over 7,000 mangroves all across the world. And, you know, mangroves provide the natural barrier against climate change and these sea storms. Now, if we plant it in the Sundarbans, which is the world's largest mangrove forest, it protects the communities. It's very beneficial. But if we plant it in Hawaii, for instance, it's an invasive species. So obviously that's not going to work. So, you know, that that's just one simple uh, way of explaining like how important localized solutions are and why we have to recognize local challenges and thereafter find those local uh, solutions. Uh, it's a very elaborate answer and also demonstrate your passion. So really, thank you about that. <laughs> um, also, I know that uh, recently you were at COP26. Uh, yeah. Uh, what were you doing there? And can you start by explaining actually what is COP26? Sure. So COP26 is the 26th conference of the parties on climate change that is organized by the UN uh, Framework Convention on Climate Change and UN Climate Change. So uh, yeah, it's basically bringing together uh, world leaders, but honestly, not just world leaders, like governments, private sector, civil society to have meaningful discussions on how we can mitigate climate change. And uh, for me, I was uh, Canada's official youth delegate to the pre-COP and then also uh, their civil society representing Canada at 
uh, cup. But yeah, for me, it was my fourth uh, cup. So it was uh, different to, to see like how uh, how the pandemic has really shaped our perspectives. And as someone who's attended uh, these uh, cops previously, we I've seen like you know how uh, policies get shaped, and you know how there's usually this void that happens after cop where uh, people just think that oh cop is the main thing and that's kind of it. But now I'm seeing a lot more impetus for people to act, uh, and I think that's a really positive sign. So for me, I was uh, there as a grassroots advocate uh, to uh, make sure that these localized solutions and their relation to climate justice, not just climate action, but climate justice that was taken into account and to really ensure that feminist sustainable development, feminist climate justice was, you know, a point of discussion at the table and point of implementation. And uh, yeah, just to uh, just to see how better we can work together as a global community, how we can share best practices and then localize those solutions uh, on the ground. So. I mean, at Green Hope Foundation, we're all about working with every sector, that, so civil society, private sector, and government, and I think that COP was a wonderful way to uh, kind of do that. So yeah, it was a very different experience, especially happening in the middle of a pandemic, but I think that it, it, it was a very positive one because it really showed us how uh, where the inequalities were and it, that everyone is geared up to act, so I think that's a really good sign. How, why would you say that COP26 is important and meaningful? Yeah, you know, at the end of the day, COP, COP and COP26 is just a conference. And, but these conferences are also important because it brings together uh, world leaders and all of all other sectors of society where you're really able to reflect on the targets that were made the previous year. You're able to talk about uh, what, uh, what was achieved, what was not achieved. And then, uh, and then you implement it. So yeah, I think it is just a conference at the end of the day, but I think it's a way to really make sure that uh, you're, you're on track to meet all of the targets and then the actual work on the ground uh, continues after that. So yeah, it definitely has a lot of importance, but what I am not super supportive of is the fact that people just see COP as the end all be all and it's like, oh, it's the end road. It's not, it's a continuous process, it's just, a way to help with target setting and uh, implementation in the long road towards achieving climate justice. About that, what do you think that is most needed to do now after uh, COP26? Well, first of all, implementation and most importantly, localized implementation. There are, even within the negotiating rooms, we were able to hear about how uh, most developing nations and emerging economies were advocating for solutions that really understood the ground level, uh, level realities mm -hmm. and not just something that's implemented by Western nations. And I think that kind of localized implementation is really crucial. And even on, the, on a national basis, because climate change affects different regions differently and then within them different communities and within them it affects people differently. So like women, young people, children, uh, the elderly, people with disabilities. It's like everyone is just affected really differently. So we need to really take that into account. And I think that is really, really crucial, especially since we have not really come out of the pandemic yet. Yeah, you're talking a lot about intersectionality. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering what is your opinion on intersectionality activism? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, that is exactly what uh, I was uh, alluding to. So I think, you know, intersectionality is extremely important. And 
that, that is, and that's why climate, let's speak about climate justice, because that recognizes the intersections of uh, the environment and like, you know, climate change with uh, how, with how that intersects and exacerbates gender inequalities, how that, you know, puts an unfair burden on low income communities, not just in the developing world, but also in the developed nations and, you know, with uh, certain people facing uh, even more severe challenges than uh, the rest of the privileged ones. So yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really, really important right now to view climate change and the actions on climate change through that intersectional lens that allows you to think about people and planet. So absolutely, I'm a huge advocate for that. It's really interesting. And you were talking earlier about the youth delegation. So I was wondering, uh, what is the role of children in COP? Well, that is a very interesting question, given that until 2017, the UNFCCC did not allow anyone under the age of 18 to enter. And yeah. I myself, attending my first COP at 12, I was, you know, I experienced that firsthand. So I think that children are the ones who, just like any other community, and especially in the least developed countries, are the ones who are facing, bearing the brunt of uh, climate change and especially again with those intersections with you know uh, being a girl being from a low-income uh, country it's like just exacerbated so I think the lived experiences of children is extremely extremely important and also it's like I, I mentioned earlier how you're never too old to learn and I think that from for someone who works regularly with children the new ideas uh, that they have it's so amazing and you know they've just have this love for people and planet that I think needs, uh, really needs to come into all of these processes and the lack of cynicism is really, really important. So I think children in that way have a really important role to play and just looking at someone based on their work and not their age. So mm -hmm. at the end of the day, it's not like, you know, let's tokenistically bring in the child and say, let's be done with that. That's not going to work. We need people who are working on the ground. And if the person happens to be a child, then that's, great it's just really the end of the day about the work it makes me think that recently uh there is a lot of people saying that actually young people have a uh, climate anxiety so uh, climate justice is really an important issue for young people in general i think yeah yeah for um, sure just to address that point about the climate anxiety i think you know that's a privilege that we have in the western world to feel that that you know a lot of us don't face climate change impacts in the first hand so we have the luxury of being able to be anxious about a problem that's not happening in another part of the world and thinking oh it's going to come to us but honestly as someone who works firsthand within those most vulnerable communities it's like you we don't have a, uh, the luxury of feeling climate anxiety because we have to take action so you know concrete ground level actions are the best way to really address that even in the developed world because at, at the end of the day we really need those so whether that's uh, planting a tree or planting a mangrove or uh, going out there and educating yourself about your local challenges and bringing about change, I think that's uh, that's a really important way of taking those local actions to address uh, the world's most existential threat right now. And that's exactly what we do at Green Hill Foundation. Well, thank you for this comment. Um, if you allow me, I would like to talk about the uh, World Congress on Justice with Children. Uh, mm -hmm. I heard that you were participating, right? Yes, yes. Okay, can you tell me more about uh, the World Congress? Why is it important to you? Yeah, I think, you know, it's a wonderful way to discuss 
the different and myriad challenges that children face all around the world and how children's role and children's rights are very often forgotten when we're discussing all of these uh, big global challenges. And the other thing is that children's rights are sometimes just seen as separate, that only this affects children, not this. And I think having the world Congress on uh, children and ensuring that, you know, again, recognize that intersectionality of how all of these problems affect children. I think that's really important and those discussions need to be had. And then, of course, uh, from those discussions, we need to implement ground level solutions. But I think it's a really positive way of bringing together all of these uh, challenges and recognizing that these challenges exist. Okay, is there one issue or matter that you are particularly uh, interested in regarding your justice with children? Uh, I don't think, I can't really specify one aspect because again, my work is so uh, multi-dimensional and it's really intersectional that it's hard to say just one issue because from, if I mention one issue, it just go into another and another and it's all interconnected. So mm -hmm. I think what I'm most, uh, what I work most on and most passionate about is addressing those very intersections. And make sure that children are heard. At absolutely. The end of yes, absolutely. I think have, making sure that, you know, again, looking at someone because of their work, not their age. And as, as someone who started work when I was seven, I, I definitely, <laughs> definitely advocate for that. Yeah, that's really impressive. <laughs> um, I have one last question regarding uh, children, uh, justice with children. I was wondering what does it mean, a uh, child friendly justice system for you? I think a child-friendly justice system is one that, well, first of all, takes into account the unique needs that children have. I think having uh, data and disaggregated data in place for children and also in, in that way ensuring that the data is uh, gender disaggregated as well because, as I mentioned earlier, that you know we have intersections with all of these problems children face. So a girl is going to face very different challenges, especially in a uh, conservative uh, community from uh, for example, uh, a boy or an older uh, youth who is uh, over there. So I think that that kind of data is really important and uh, just understanding those unique challenges. And I think accepting uh, the views uh, of uh, what children are saying and understanding their lived experiences, that's really important. And we're, again, so often we just look at, you know, I've heard people just call children like, oh yeah, the kids over there are doing that. First of all, it's weird calling them that because kid is a baby goat and just it's just it's just really weird seeing that people dismiss children as just uh, someone who can't make a difference and I think that kind of mindset needs to change so understanding you can learn from anyone regardless of their age that I think that for the child-friendly thing that's definitely in my book that is what it would constitute of. Yeah I couldn't agree more um, and I was you said you started to work uh, when you were around seven, is working as a child uh, difficult to be taken seriously? Yeah, I would definitely say that there was a lot of skepticism from uh, people when they saw that, you know, a seven-year-old was uh, trying to bring about that change in mindset. But honestly, my work spoke for itself. So whether it was a seven or 12 or uh, 14, I had my ground level work to back me up. So when I was able to tell people that, you know, this is the impact that we've been able to make, and this is what how many people we've been able uh, to help and how many lives we've been able to change and continue to do so, I think that kind of brought about that change in mindset. So yeah, it is, it is challenging. And you know, as a child as well, and especially as a girl child, you 
I think you face so many other challenges. And for me, it came in the form of cyberbullying, death threats, stalking, types of physical abuse, and even harassment from older youth when I got elected at the age of 12 uh, to the United Nations Environment Program, Children and Youth. I was the youngest uh, to date to ever hold that position. And there were older youth, all of them actually were uh, men, uh, who felt very threatened by a 12-year-old girl in a position of power. So, you know, that kind of thing is was always there and still uh, continues to be there. And that's something I definitely work to change. And that's why I'm so adamant that Green Hope Foundation is a safe space for everyone so that, you know, you learn from everyone, you can follow your dreams, no matter who you are, and you know, just really go for it and allow your work to speak for itself. Well, I'm, I'm so sorry to hear about what you had to go through. Why, why at seven years old did you decide to start activism? Mm -hmm. Well, I was fortunate to grow up in a family where I was able to see my parents and my grandparents really give back to the community and the planet at every point. And, you know, with my parents going out every weekend to distribute food and clothes to the less fortunate, nice to go with them. And my grandmother to this day has an organic urban terrace garden. So, you know, she grows her own food, fruits and vegetables there. So for me, it was normal to just think about people and planet but then when i was seven i saw the image of a dead bird whose stomach was full of plastic i was really disturbed by that and then uh, i attended a lecture by environmentalist robert swan and he had said that the greatest threat to our planet is the belief that someone else will save it and you know i just realized that i had to do something to bring about change i couldn't just wait for someone else to bring about change so that's when i decided that on my eighth birthday, I would plant my first tree, which in my birthday is World Environment Day. So I <laughs> thought that, okay, this is uh, my first individual action for uh, the planet. So yeah, that's that's how I started out. And you know, that's something I still stand by that, you know, we uh, playing the blame game is not going to work as responsible, empathetic global citizens. It's our duty to begin. And that's exactly how I started out. It's wonderful to see how you started and everything you have accomplished so far. Thank you. Uh, as, like also you mentioned like you were a victim of threats and everything. So it's really beautiful to keep you, that you keep going and doing your amazing work. Yeah. Thank you. So concerning the International Children's Peace Prize, uh, what did winning bring to your activism? Did you see any uh, benefit? Sure, I think winning the International Children's Peace Prize definitely, uh, you know, gave me a wider platform to connect with more uh, young people and children bringing about change around the world and just uh, to spread the message that children can bring about change. And those of us who have had the privilege of being able to, uh, you know, for instance, go to school and, you know, use, uh, it's so important that we use that knowledge and that education that we get to bring about change. So I think, yeah, definitely it's in, increased my uh, reach and that platform has helped uh, me to reach out to more people and just to see where uh, in which other places uh, myself and Green Hope Foundation can be a catalyst for change. So yeah, it's been amazing. It's really good to hear. So on this, uh, we I would like to conclude the, the podcast, but before is there is anything else that you would like to share with us? I think the last thing I would probably share is that for children and young people and really anyone looking to bring about change, it's just so important to start small. I think we don't emphasize enough how uh, important localized solutions and starting and 
at the ground level and bringing about change in your local community is. So I think just going from there and most importantly, defining your own path of success in this age of social media, uh, it's just so easy to see someone and be like, oh, I have to be exactly that or else, you know, I failed. I think that really we need to bring about the change in mindset that every person has their own journey. And I think defining your own path of success is very, very important. So yeah, I'll stop there. <laughs> Thank you very much for being here and for also answering all the questions I had. And also thank you for everybody who was listening. Until next time.